Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. As promised last week, I've got more details for you about our upcoming Flash Fiction Contest. The contest goes live, well, as of today, actually, Friday, May 15th. In the spirit of these current trying times, our inspiration for this contest is a painting by Swiss artist Arnold Boeklin, entitled, fittingly, Plague. Boeklin had quite the obsession with death and disease, as it turns out. And now it's your turn to harness a little piece of that darkness, to make pestilence your muse, and create a bite-sized piece of fiction that would feel right at home on this podcast. The winner will have their story read on the show by one of our talented narrators, and get an extra 25 bucks in their pocket, too head over to TalesToTerrify.com slash Flash Contest for all of the details and to submit your story. The contest closes May 15th, so if you've got a tale to spin, make haste, children of the night. We're excited to hear what your twisted minds can conjure. Speaking of dark inspiration... As we start to pack up and get ready to head off on another journey into dark myths, legends, and true horrors, this time from around my part of the continent, I figured I'd start by sharing a little of my own experiences to kick us off. These are true stories, by the way, 
or at least as true as I remember them. Pretty much as far back as I can remember, I've had a love for all things strange and supernatural. Like any kid, I had the usual childhood scares, being nervous to let my feet dangle off the edge of the bed at night, sprinting for the stairs after pulling the string to turn the lights off in the basement. For the most part, even as a kid, I think I knew that those fears were unfounded. The typical kind of fears conjured up by the lizard part of a child's brain. But there are a few times in my life when it seemed more real, more visceral, than a feeling or image conjured purely from my imagination. If you've never seen a summer thunderstorm roll in across the prairies at sunset, it's a hell of a sight. The last bright rays of sun shooting low across the grass, streaming underneath a cresting wave of billowing black cloud. Everything takes on a dark, impending quality. Colors seem deeper and richer, but the shadows become longer and darker too. Saskatchewan, the province I'm from, is sometimes called the Land of the Living Skies. Or at least, that's the slogan on our license plate. Okay, we don't really get much in the way of tornadoes, no risk of hurricanes, but when dark clouds start to gather on the horizon, especially after a particularly hot day, and you find yourself out in the bald-ass prairie with no buildings to hide in or no cars to speed away in, and that large, heavy mass approaching in the sky... Skin starts to prickle like goose flesh, and the hairs on your neck begin to rise. It's not just the sudden drop in temperature, either. It's a feeling of vulnerability. The big, roiling black clouds have a real presence, almost a weight to them, and they rush at you, predatory. The day after arriving at my great aunt and uncle's farm for the first time, a storm just like that began to gather on the horizon. I'd grown up in a big city a province over for most of my life, so I'd never really spent any time at a farm before. And once we'd done the tours and the ground rules were laid, I was pretty much left to my own devices, to wander and explore as long as I stayed more or less on the property. Of course, when we're talking about farm and ranch land, I think I'd have gotten bored and tired long before I managed to walk anywhere close to the edge of the property. And again, for the week we were there, I did have plenty of time on my hands. On our drive in the day before, not long after the cracked, potholed asphalt of the highway turned to gravel, we'd come to a fork in the road. And at the center of the fork was an old, worn building. A schoolhouse, my grandmother told me, one she'd both attended and taught at as a girl. Her family homesteaded the land back in the early 1900s, and as the oldest child in the family and part of a very small community, when she was old enough, helping to educate the younger kids had fallen to her. She was whip-smart, though, one of the most clever and intelligent people I think I've ever known, and I miss her dearly. We'd stopped the car and had a quick walk around the little building. 
she shared some stories about the old days growing up in that area, and I sat on the old, leaning swing set, a rough board tied to a sagging overhead beam with thick, fraying rope. Growing up in a larger, modern city, especially one where they made a habit of tearing down every old building that came up for sale to put in a new, modern infill, I'd never really been exposed to anything that authentically old. Not outside of a museum or the local heritage park, anyway. But we were running late for dinner, and we left before I'd really had a chance to check out the schoolhouse itself. Something about the place had seriously piqued my interest. Not just the history of it, not just the land or the building itself, but a, a feeling. So, the next day, even with dark clouds threatening on the fringes of the sky, I figured I'd have plenty of time to make it to the school and back by foot. It was straight down the only gravel road, and it hadn't taken long in the car. Maybe five minutes. Turns out, five minutes by car and five minutes by foot are very different, especially since I was maybe twelve years old at the time. And by the time I reached the schoolhouse, the shadows had grown long, and thunder had begun to rumble. I remember the wind picking up and blowing dust around the little building. The place had a much less inviting presence in the strange half-light before the storm. The windows of the building were fairly tall. I had to stand on tiptoes to peer in, fingers pressing into the windowsill, and my nose almost resting on the edge. Through the dusty glass, I was surprised to see how intact everything still was inside. Desks still sat in rows, facing the blackboard along the far wall. There was a little pot-bellied stove off to one side, and some crumbling shelves along one wall. With the brewing storm activity starting to pick up, the darkness outside made it a little hard to see a lot of the details in the school but there were plenty of dusty objects on desks and lining shelves that made my imagination run wild. I could almost see the kids using this building, could almost hear the sounds of them talking and learning, the scratch of chalk on the blackboard. I slid sideways across the window, peering hard into the schoolhouse, trying to make out whatever detail I could, when my eyes suddenly focused on something in the foreground that I had missed. I remember gasping and falling away from the window before I could quite process what it was. Trapped between the two panes of glass, a mere inch from my nose as I had peered in through the window, was a nest. A nest full of tiny little skeletons, with a larger skeleton moldering beside it. As my hammering heart began to slow, a morbid curiosity took hold. The mother bird must have built the nest between the panes, and then somehow gotten stuck. It was sad, but it was also kind of cool. It's an image that sticks in my mind very clearly to this day. But I was there for the schoolhouse, so I kept moving around the windows, trying to get a better vantage fingers dragging on the rough wood of the window sills. The storm had finally started to spit, 
big fat raindrops splattering on the dusty earth. I rounded one corner and cupped my hands to my temples to peer in another window. As I'd hoped, the new angle gave me a different view on the single-room building, a better look at the pot-bellied stove, and a clear glimpse of what stood beside it. This time I didn't stumble back. I froze. I distinctly remember the feeling like ice water flowing down the inside of my spine and pooling at my feet to freeze them to the spot. I remember seeing a figure, the outline of a person, dark and featureless, standing beside the stove. It could have been my imagination, could have been the wind, but it seemed to sway just a little the way somebody trying so hard to stand perfectly still but can't quite cease the natural movements of their body. I just stood there, afraid to move, afraid it would move. And when I finally convinced my fingers to release the windowsill I had been clenching and my legs to bend and move again, I ran, I ran as fast as I could back down that gravel road. I ran until my lungs burned, which, admittedly, is a fairly chubby kid. That wasn't all that far. But I never looked back, and I definitely didn't stop moving until I was back in the farmyard, cold, wet, and shivering. I never did tell anyone there about it. I was convinced neither my grandmother or my great-uncle and aunt would believe me. And I also half expected that I'd get in trouble for going to the schoolhouse by myself. Even though part of me was curious, I never did have a chance to make it back to the schoolhouse during that trip, other than giving it a wary glance as we drove past on our way home. That was my first and only trip to the farm. Not because I was scared or because I didn't want to go back, it just, for some reason, never happened again. But this is one of those rare childhood memories that still stays so vivid for me. I can feel the temperature of the air, smell the warm, dusty sweetness, the petrichor scent of the rain hitting the earth. Funny, though, given its vividness in my memory, it's not a story I've really shared with very many people. Revisiting this with you, though, Diving into the memory and sharing it, I have to admit it's given me a pretty strong yearning to take the drive down to where the farm used to be and to see if the old school is still there, if the swings are still standing, and if the family of bird skeletons are still trapped in the panes of glass. If I do, I promise to let you know, children of the night. But for tonight, I think it's time we heard some proper fiction. We have one story for you this evening that comes to us from Harrison Demchik. Raised in Baltimore, Maryland, on a steady diet of magical realism, literary fiction, science fiction, and Spider-Man comics, Harrison Demchik spent most of his formative years inside his own head, working out strange thoughts and ideas that would eventually make their way into stories, screenplays, and songs. 
As a developmental editor, he's worked on more than 70 published novels and memoirs. As a musician, his debut EP, Other Guy, dropped quietly, even silently, in 2018. As an author, he's written the literary horror novel, The Listeners, and 2019 short stories, Magic Land and The Bead, published in literary magazines Phantom Drift and The Hunger. His latest, The Yesterday House, will appear in the September 2020 issue of Aurealis. And as a screenwriter, he's an inaugural fellow of the Johns Hopkins University Saul Zaints Innovation Fund. And his first film, Ape Canyon, made its festival debut in November 2019. Harrison currently lives in Washington, D.C. with his wife Carolyn and their two cats with a combined seven legs. He's working on a novel, a series of short stories, a couple screenplays, a pair of musicals, a concept album, and whatever else keeps him distracted from the dark void that will one day consume us all. You can find Harrison at harrisondemchick.com or on Facebook as Harrison Demchick. He has not updated either. Children of the Night, join me for Harrison Demchick's Tailgating, a Tales to Terrify original. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you want me to return it? Henry Lee didn't look at her as he said it, hunched in the passenger seat like a gnome, fingers crinkling the small brown paper bag that sat on the thighs of his mud-stained jeans. Henry's eyes fixed themselves firmly on the bottom edge of the glove compartment, just beneath the latch, where they had little chance of meeting anything that might make things worse. 
Not that he needed to look at Rebecca to see her. He knew the face from the sound of the sigh, in the same way he knew the pitch of her eyebrows when she laughed, or the fevered glow at the crest of her cheeks when she struggled to pretend she hadn't badly miscalculated the tip. So the sigh cut as deep as the glare would have, and it filled the car, from the spot beneath the latch of the little silver Mazda's glove compartment, to the back seat where Ernie slept and Tyra stared endlessly out the back window, as she always did during long car rides. Henry had asked her once what she was doing back there. Looking, she'd said, in the sort of tone that made it clear she considered it a thorough and, in fact, obvious response. Henry had not argued the point. That's not a real offer, Rebecca said evenly. What do you mean? said Henry. The sigh again. It's a Celtic festival, said Rebecca. It ends today, and it closed twenty minutes ago. If you were going to return it, you'd have returned it before we left. I could go online. That's not the point. You always do this. You don't apologize until you know you can do it without any real repercussions. I don't do that. Well, your new toy says differently, doesn't it? She said it with finality with the kind of edge that took a discussion by the throat and sliced it through the jugular. The brown paper bag crunched as Henry held it instinctively tighter. His eyes wandered from the glove compartment to the bag, and the tinge within of emerald green on brown. He heard the gentle stream of traffic passing the other way, on what he assumed still to be the endless winding road through the wilds of Pennsylvania. It's not a fucking toy, he said quietly. It was, in fact, a small dagger of the sort Henry had seen often between Celtic festivals and Renaissance fairs, or on websites and blogs where joyous fellow attendees, still dressed in the sort of period garb Henry had worn himself before the last five years or so, his chainmail likely collecting dust in the attic somewhere underneath Ernie's recently discarded crib, placed their latest acquisition on proud display in offices and basements recorded in the perpetuity of YouTube. The shadows had been just starting to lengthen on the festival grounds that afternoon, when Henry had seen it, an unanticipated stop en route back from the privies with Ernie, who, at two, had not yet mastered all the finer points of the process. The green lantern symbol on the grip had been the clincher. This was a difficult thing to explain to Rebecca, especially because the next question, inevitably, was the cost, which was not pretty. And as she always was, and as Henry knew she would be, Rebecca was quick to point out Tyra's sixth birthday party, and the repairs from the broken-down dishwasher last month, and in particular her parents' increasingly insurmountable hospital bills. And, didn't we just talk about this last week? And, were you even listening? And, didn't you think about that before you bought something we don't even need? The answers to which were yes, they had, yes, he was, and no, he didn't. And it doesn't have to be useful anyway, Henry muttered to the paper bag. What did you say? said Rebecca. It doesn't always have to be useful, said Henry. It can just be nice. Are you serious? Henry stared at the bag. Will you look at me when we're talking? said Rebecca. Jesus, Henry, sometimes you're worse than the kids. At this, Henry looked up and pivoted his eyes toward the back seat. But Ernie was still sleeping soundly in his plush-red car seat, thin strands of black hair falling almost over his eyelids. Tyra maintained her staring match with the road and cars behind her, the sun beginning to fall behind the pines and birch trees bordering the winding route back home. 
Her pigtails spiraled downwards towards her tablet and the Cheez-Its that littered the soft gray seats. She seemed oblivious. Henry turned back to the front of the car, where he saw Rebecca watching him sidelong. He'd been right. Eyebrows low beneath her curly brown hair, head tilted left just slightly, thumbs rubbing the steering wheel raw. Do you have to say that right in front of them? said Henry. They didn't hear Henry. I spoke quietly. That's why I spoke quietly, said Rebecca, her words measured with the same precision as the almond milk in her morning coffee. They could hear anyway, said Henry. Don't try to make this about something else. I'm not making it about... Don't try to pretend it's my fault, car, that you're behaving like some... Rebecca, car! Rebecca hit the brakes, and the car jolted a yard shy of the silver car in front of them. Henry instinctively spun around again, where Tyra now faced him, confusion in the slate-blue eyes she'd inherited from her mother. But she seemed otherwise unfazed, and after a moment turned back toward the rear window. Ernie continued to sleep, a line of pale white drool marking his chin. Henry turned his eyes forward again. He looked at the silver car moving swiftly several yards ahead. He saw Tyra staring through the window back at him. This took a moment to register. The familiarity of the face in the back window of the other car. The roundness of the eyes. The bend of the ears. The pigtails, one sitting upon the small ledge before the window and the other dropping behind the seats. The owl pendant dangling from her neck. Henry looked over his shoulder toward the back seat of their car. There Tyra sat, looking out the back window, one ponytail sitting on the ledge, the other dropping toward her lower back. He turned again to the car in front of them. The girl in the car stared at him. Henry stared at her. It's Tyra, Henry said. What? said Rebecca a little lightly. In the car, Henry said, pointing out past the windshield. Rebecca followed his finger to the car in front of them. The girl watched them passively as the evening sunlight reflected silver-orange off the frame of the car. Shadows moved behind her in the front seat. She does look like Tyra, said Rebecca. No, it's Tyra, Henry said. It's... come on, Henry. The license plate. What? Look at the license plate. She did look at the license plate, visible now that their car had fallen farther behind the other. Maryland Tags, 50370Q, latched securely to the tail of what looked to be their own little silver Mazda. That's... that's a mistake, said Rebecca. She peered out the window, squinting in the sunlight. It's the light, a trick of the light. The five is probably an eight. Tyra, said Henry loudly. The girl in the car ahead of them turned toward the front seat. What? said Tyra behind them. Henry stared at the bob of brown hair in front of him, the knotted pigtails falling against the seat back. In the changing light he could see also in the other car the outline of a little head bouncing like a bobblehead in time with the bumps on the road. Beyond that there were only shadows, but there was something in the way they moved, in the awkward tilt of the one on the right, and the particular hunch of the shoulder of the one on the left, like when he saw her once years ago through the window of her third-story apartment as the sun cast her and the phone she cradled beneath her ear in near-perfect silhouette. He shut his eyes tightly. "'What?' said Tyra again behind him. "'Nothing,' said Henry. "'What?' "'Nothing. I said it's nothing.' 
said Henry, spinning in his seat as he said it. He saw her eyes go wide, and for a moment they held him before she turned again to the back window. Then there was only the hum of tires on the road. I'm sorry, Henry said, so quiet he wasn't even sure he'd spoken the words aloud. Then he turned back to the front of the road, dodging Rebecca's eyes, although at this point it was hard to guess with any confidence what they would say. Instead, he found himself looking again at the sad-eyed Tyra in the window of the other car. She wiped her glassy eyes as she leaned against the gray seats. The shadows behind her hung nearly still, save for uncomfortably consistent shifts as the road rumbled beneath them all. This isn't possible, said Rebecca quietly. Henry didn't know how to respond to that. He only watched. The Tyra in the other car raised her hand and waved at Henry. Henry waved back. Then she fell to his right as the engine roared and their car shifted left. Henry looked to see Rebecca staring intensely past the car in front of them, crossing the double yellow lines of the winding road. What are you doing? said Henry. Passing, she said. Her hands gripped the wheel and her foot pressed hard on the gas, but as both cars passed a worn-looking, self-described family restaurant nestled in the corner of a teal-signed strip mall, the other car accelerated as well, with the hood of their car passing no farther than the tip of the left passenger door. Henry saw the scratch there, from when he'd cut too hard trying to parallel park in Baltimore, arced in a downward slanted parenthesis, before an SUV appeared where the next hill crested, and Rebecca had to hit the brakes and fall back into the right lane. Rebecca kept her eyes past the red SUV as it approached, then rolled on beside them, but another line of cars carried on behind it and then on the other side of the hill curves and trees gathered near enough that passing the silver Mazda in front of them, with the sad, tired girl staring out the backseat window, became a decided impossibility. I can try again later, said Rebecca. Okay, said Henry. It was an odd exchange, and somehow it reminded Henry that he still carried the paper bag on his lap. It crinkled softly between hands he had not realized until now were shaking. He thought about letting it fall to the floor beside his feet where his heels brushed against the Celtic Festival program and a half-finished water bottle, but he couldn't make himself do it. A sudden movement in the other car caught his attention. It came from the front seat. The shadow on the left was no longer still, and no longer so reflective in its bends and its shifts. Instead, Henry saw movement, sharp and defined, an arm gesturing harshly toward the center of the car. As he looked closer, he saw also a change in the shadow in the passenger seat, bent rightward, nearly disappearing into the outlines of the door. To his own left, Henry saw both of Rebecca's hands on the wheel, and indeed wrapped so tightly the knuckles had started to whiten. The contrast reminded him, uncomfortably, of a scene he remembered from watching Peter Pan with Tyra when she was four. Peter's shadow, acting of its own volition, eager for escape beyond the fading of the sun, except Henry realized also that the shadows in the front seat of the other car were no longer merely shadows. They were figures, their lines beginning to fill him with disconcerting recognition. The one on the left chopped at the air like a cleaver, the way it had last week when the hospital bills came due, or the way it did whenever Henry ate or drank the construction pay away, or even just whenever he tried to breathe beyond the confines of the shrinking Auburn house in which they'd all found themselves and the one on the right slumped and stewed 
and arched down like a river trickling down a small waterfall. There at the bottom it pooled and built. Pressure and time. We should turn around, said Henry. Turn around? said Rebecca. Or pull over, or something. What's happening? said Tyra from the back seat. Henry could hear that Tyra had turned around, but the Tyra in the other car continued to watch him, even as the movement in the front seats behind her grew more violent. Nothing, said Rebecca, pointedly at first. Then she looked at her in the rearview mirror, and her voice softened. Nothing, Koala Bear, she said. Everything's okay. But in the car in front of them, Henry watched a tear fall down Tyra's face. We should... I know, said Rebecca. They didn't, though. Soon the woods opened up and the sides of the road populated with dentist's office and in business parks. The road widened enough to tease the possibility of passing, but still the traffic was constant in the other direction. Not heavy, but with the sort of regularity that on an ordinary workday would be frustrating. And this evening began to settle into the bottom of Henry's stomach as something hopeless. His fingers tightened against the bag, his thighs as well. The crinkling filled the car like white noise in slow motion. And the shadow behind the crying girl sunk deeper into the vortex of his passenger seat. Please stop that, said Rebecca, the tension weaving its way into her voice like a thread through the torn lining in the pocket of a pair of jeans. Henry heard the words in a distant sort of way, but he couldn't quite bring them together or figure out how to apply them. The shadow arm chopped against the air. Henry crumpled the bag surrounding his acquisition. Henry, said Rebecca. The Tyra in the other car spun around toward the front. Henry saw her pigtails bounce in response. It looked like she was shouting something, and he saw a quick movement from the small figure sleeping in the car seat beside her. Henry crumpled the bag, and crumpled it, and crumpled it again. Damn it, Henry! Rebecca yelled as she grabbed for the bag. Hey! said Henry, grasping it tighter. Their car swerved right, then left, as Henry tugged the bag away from Rebecca, and Tyra said something harsh and hurt from the back seat, and Rebecca yelled, and Ernie stirred and started to cry, and both Henry and Rebecca found their eyes on the car in front of them, just in time to see the shadow in the driver's seat throw her hand heavily into the head of the passenger beside her. Pull over, said Henry. What's wrong? shouted Tyra from the back seat. The passenger fell hard into the door, and the driver's hand hit him again. Please pull over, said Henry. Ernie cried louder, shrill and inconsolable. The driver raised her arm, and the girl in the back seat leaned forward. Rebecca, said Henry. What's happening? yelled Tyra. And the shadow in the driver's seat wheeled around and smacked the girl across the face with the back of her flesh and blood hand, sending her flopping back into the seat like a rag doll. A gas station appeared on the side of the road, and Rebecca pulled swiftly into it. Past Rebecca's shaking hands, Henry watched the other car sail away. The evening was humid, but not as hot as the day had been, and beneath the fading orange sunlight Henry found the chill in a breeze that drifted heavily from what he took to be the west. Standing outside the car, where Ernie's cries had submerged into a general wariness, and Tyra's attention had gone, with some skepticism, toward a frog game on her tablet. Henry hugged his arms around his chest and looked toward the gas pump, where Rebecca on the driver's side filled up a car that didn't really need it. He approached slowly. 
Are you okay? he said. Rebecca didn't say anything, but the vibration of her head soon made its way into something close to a nod. Henry noticed again the trembling in her arms and the way she pushed them together to will them still. We should stay in a hotel tonight, said Henry. I think we passed one a few miles back. A night in or something? We could stay, just for the night, and then tomorrow... We're not staying in a hotel, said Rebecca. Why not? The latch on the gas pump caught. We're only an hour and a half from home, said Rebecca as she released the pump and pulled it from the gas tank. And we can't exactly afford a hotel right now, can we? But we can't go out there again, said Henry. After what just happened, nothing happened, said Rebecca, shoving the pump back into its hold. Henry felt a tightening in his stomach, or somewhere beneath his chest. What? Nothing happened, said Rebecca. A tall red pickup pulled into the open pump behind them. It was just... It was just the light, and the shadows, and the way the mind brings those things together. What? And you said the girl was Tyra, and it set my mind spinning in these impossible directions, that's all, said Rebecca. She turned her attention to the touchscreen display, marred by a jutting crack of the sort caused by a flung pebble or the bullet of a pellet gun. The beeps played absently beneath the country song filtering softly through the invisible speakers somewhere in the grating above them. How can you say that? said Henry. How can you say that after everything we saw? We didn't see anything, said Rebecca. A receipt word from the thin black slot beneath the display. Rebecca retrieved it and shoved it into her pocket. But she didn't turn her eyes from the display, and she didn't move toward the driver's seat of the car. Do you remember the fetch? said Henry. Rebecca looked to her shoes. She didn't say anything. The fetch, said Henry, from the show at the festival. It's like a twin, they said, or a look-alike. Remember? It's a Celtic omen? A bad sign? Like something terrible is going to happen? Rebecca turned to him. Surprisingly softly, she said, Nothing bad is going to happen. She wrapped her hands tightly around one another. And we can't just not go home, because you think... But it's in other cultures, too, said Henry, hands open and wide. In German, it's a doppelganger. And there's one in Egyptian mythology, and Norse, and... And no matter what it is, they all say, No, Henry, do you hear yourself? Do you hear how stupid this is? The words came out razor sharp. We got stuck behind a car with a girl who looks like Tyra. That's what happened. That's all that happened. And if you wanted me to freak the fuck out about it and spend the night in a hotel less than two hours away from home, then maybe you shouldn't have dropped a hundred dollars on a toy knife. I'll return the dagger and then we can afford the hotel. Rebecca looked at him then deeply and appraisingly, in a way that he felt more keenly than anything she said. But it was always like that. The shift in her shoulder. The kind of doubt in her eyes that comes only from knowing someone so well, for so long, to understand fully, exactly how useless they are. Henry, she said, that's not a real offer. With that she turned to the driver's seat, opened the door, and threw herself inside. The motor started up and the car started to hum. Henry still standing paralyzed by the gas pump. 
he felt a turn in his brain, little and impotent, squirming its way beneath his hair and underneath the balls of his eyes. An unscratchable, untouchable itch he felt sometimes lingering consolingly underneath his blood on nights that ran too late or important talks that lasted too long. The sun sank deeper behind the darkening summer clouds. Henry took the back way around the car, opened the door, and pulled himself into the passenger seat. The car made its way back onto the road. The road was calm, even beautiful in the twilight as the businesses and shops gave way to sun-scorched single-floor homes, and then the homes gave way again to grass and trees and sky. For some time the only sound, save the disappearing rush of passing cars, was the roar of the wheels on the winding road and the beeps and chirps from Tyra's game. Ernie, still exhausted, had fallen back into slumber in minutes. The world had drifted away. It was quiet. It was not peaceful. In the minutes immediately following the gas station, Henry had kept his gaze on the perpetual horizon, and whenever the glint of a car had revealed itself underneath the last fading beams of sunlight, he waited for a sign of the silver paint, the license plate he'd misreported the first time he'd backed into the neighbor's fence, and the sad girl in the back seat. The bag he'd placed down beneath his feet, it crinkled slightly when the movement of the car sent it sliding softly into the toe of his shoe. When after a while the car hadn't reappeared, Henry relaxed enough to let the entire evening fall back over him. Beyond the shock of the shadows in that impossible front seat had been the familiarity, the movements jagged and violent and undeserved, the feeling of sinking away, the way shadows inevitably do when night falls and there's nothing left to cause them. Again, Henry didn't need to look at Rebecca to see what was on her face. The set in her jaw and the stiffness in her neck, statuesque nearly to the point of breaking, yet held together by the twin adhesives of condescension and absolute certainty. She would hold on to this now, he knew, locking it into place like the bones of her fingers gripped claw-like on the wheel. She would store it behind the gears and pistons in her head, like the time he failed to start the flame on the gas stove and force the evacuation of her parents' Memphis brownstone, or the time he told her boss to fuck off at the Christmas party he never wanted to go to anyway, or the time he forgot to pick up Tyra from daycare, or the time he this, or the time he that, combination locked but ready for release on birthdays or Thanksgivings or, hell, whenever the world would benefit from another goddamn screw-up from the perpetually inept yet somehow still alive Henry Lee because he didn't know, because he was pissed, because he was human, because he was right. Only when he felt the car start to break did Henry look up from the bag beneath his feet. The details of the car in front of them were initially difficult to make out beneath their own shining headlights. But when the girl in the back seat turned around again, Henry knew. He knew the way tears held first in the eyes like marbles, very nearly in defiance of gravity until at last they fell down her cheeks like rivulets that captured in reflection the helplessness of whoever should be so unfortunate as to cause them. He knew his daughter. If nothing else, he knew his daughter. Do you see? He said to Rebecca quietly. The people beyond the girl were no longer shadows. Somewhere underneath his pounding skull he understood that the light was too faded now. The sun very nearly gone, 
for the occupants in the front seat to be as visible as they were. But their shapes were clearer now than they'd been half an hour earlier, or whenever it had been, and Henry could see the tone of her skin and the strained tendons in the muscles of her right arm as she drove. He could see the shift in his bulk, pushing from the side of the car like a boxer beating the count of ten. Only the details were absent. The features on their hollow faces when he turned archly toward her, the color and weight of the t-shirt with its sleeves falling nearly to her elbows, the words suggested by his movement, short and furious. Do you see? Henry said louder. The trees crept in over the nearly dark road like the walls of a collapsing tent, and the curves kept the space to the left impassable. But Henry did not have the wheel, and with an ache pounding beneath his eyes and his ribs tight against his lungs, he did not want to pass. He could see the passenger yelling, his head jutting into the space that separated him from the driver, and though the words were blanks, Henry could feel himself filling them in. He could feel them radiating off his skin, exercising out of it. Do you see? said Henry, fingers curling, toe nudging against the bag at his feet, as the girl in the back seat in front of them spun around to the figures in the front of the car. Her pigtails shook as she stretched against her seatbelt. We should turn around, said Rebecca. No, said Henry. The girl leaned farther toward the front. Her pigtails disappeared beneath the seat. The driver came at the passenger like a dagger, and the passenger leaned into her, and a small head rose from the left side of the back seat at the same moment Henry became aware, distantly, of something much like a whimper from something far, far behind him. We'll find a side road, and we'll turn around, Rebecca said. Don't you dare, said Henry. The handle of the brown bag found its way to the tips of his dangling fingers. The road twisted serpentine underneath the cavernous cover of trees, turning from a dulling blue into a harsh and never-ending black. In the other car, the girl's pigtails shook like dangling nooses from the rotting rafters of an old and dying building, and the boy beside her kicked at his car seat, and in the shadows of the faces of the jagged bodies in the front seat, lines began to form, delineated and precise, the bend of the nose and the curve of a brow and the unflinching familiarity of the muscles lining her throat as she spun around and, with the back of her narrow hand, once again sent the girl spiraling back into the seat from which she came. We... we have to go. No. We have to go. No. But Rebecca pressed her foot into the brake, and with the road straightening just enough and the silver car in front of them fading just a bit into the shadows ahead, she released her hands from the wheel and pulled it left, the car shifting over the double yellow lines. Don't you fucking dare, Henry said, suddenly reaching with his free hand and grabbing the wheel, barely hearing the squeal of the wheels as the car shifted jarringly inward, rumbling over onto the shoulder and very nearly the grass, until Rebecca pulled left again, just in time to match the curve of the road and the end of whatever window had existed a moment prior. Now Henry looked at her as his left hand held tight to the wheel. He heard yelling somewhere, but not from Rebecca. Her eyes were wide and stupid. The cracks showed in the bend of her neck, and he felt her right hand shaking directly beneath his left. And as they drifted near again to the other car, he found half her gaze automatically on the road in front of them, and the other half toward him with something he had never seen before. I was going to return it! I was going to return it! Henry yelled. 
But you had to be so fucking... Henry, Daddy, stop it. Horrible, he spat. Like, I can't have something? I can't have something for myself? Someone was crying. The paper bag crinkled as he tightened his fingers around it. The movement in the other car grew frantic and chaotic, and Henry felt more than saw it, pounding through his veins like boiling water. Who the fuck are you to say I can't? Like I'm a child? Do you see what you're doing to us? Do you see? Henry, please. Glass-eyed, trembling. His left hand gripped the wheel so tightly it might as well crumble beneath him. His brain throbbed beneath his skull, and his right fingers felt and darted, and the pigtails shook behind the girl on the back seat, and the driver pushed and yelled, and there was screaming and crying, and the road turned tighter and tighter beneath the rolling wheels. You did this! You did this! said Henry. The girl shook and sobbed. The driver threw her arm into the passenger's shoulder. The passenger reached his hand down somewhere between the seat and the door. Do you see now? Do you see what you are? The bag crinkling, kicking against the back of his seat, words from somewhere lost in a void of encroaching green. You stupid, condescending fucking little... And the passenger emerged from his seat with something short and sharp, emerald green reflecting in the glare of the headlights before it plunged into the chest of the woman in the driver's seat. Henry felt the words leave him. He heard the screams of his daughter behind him, the cries of his wife. He saw the face of the passenger, as clear and stark as if right beside him. The round bulb of his own nose, the arc of his ears, the wild flicker in his eyes, familiar from passing glances and bathroom mirrors, when alcohol loosened from him something he would swear, to God, to Christ, to Rebecca, to anyone who asked was never there. He saw the triumph in the passenger's smile and he felt his own right hand wrapped around an emerald blade. In an instant, the blade dropped, and his left hand loosened on the steering wheel, and the wheel squealed and the car lurched and turned and accelerated, quickly, with Henry's eyes fighting with everything they had to avoid the rearview mirror and anything else he might see. He heard Ernie crying, Tyra too, though quietly. Mostly, he heard the quiet roll of the wheels on the road, ascending the spirals, somehow less sudden going up than down. The light was gone now completely. Henry wasn't sure when that had happened, but there was still enough in their own headlights and the steady green glow of the console for Henry to see in Rebecca an unsteadiness that terrified him. For several minutes they drove in silence. Tyra's crying turned to breathing, and in time Henry couldn't hear that either. A small blue Volkswagen passed beside them, and then a motorcycle and then they were out of the trees. Soon they would be at the gas station, and after that, perhaps, a hotel. Tomorrow they would make it home. He didn't know what would follow. The brown paper bag, empty now, had fallen by his feet. It crinkled beneath the toe of his left shoe. I'm sorry, he whispered. Rebecca kept her eyes on the road. Me too she said. Henry didn't look at her as she said it. The car carried on down the road. That was Harrison Demchick's Tailgating, as read by Anthony Babington. 
Anthony Babington is an aspiring voice actor who looks just slightly off from how he sounds. From his secret volcano lair in Minnesota, he narrates podcasts and leases his soul to corporate America. He has previously recorded for Far-Fetched Fables, Starship Sofa, and the Cursed Inn podcast. He can be found on Twitter as at Aleph Baker. Thank you, Anthony. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Remember to check out contest details and submit your dark little morsels over at talestoterrify.com slash flash contest. You've only got a few weeks. I look forward to hearing what you come up with. And as always, support us on Patreon for access to ad-free episodes, bonus content, and more. Visit patreon.com slash talestoterrify to sign up. Or if you prefer PayPal, you can support us via the link near the bottom of our homepage. And if you've got a minute, help us spread the darkness by submitting a rating or a review on your favorite podcast app. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we set sail for Stygian seas with more Tales to Terrify. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.